All right. Well, good morning. I want to begin with a story that happened about uh, maybe a month or so ago. Finley, who's our five-year-old daughter, uh, she was had a friend over. They were playing upstairs in her room. Christina was downstairs doing some things, and all of a sudden, she hears Christina hears a loud crash. Right, something had fallen and broken in Finley's room. Uh, to which Finley responds by telling her friend, Christina can hear all this. It's okay. Let's go tell my mom, and she'll fix it. Her, fr- her friend then goes back and forth with Finley saying, well, no, you can't tell your mom because we're going to get in trouble, and so we can't do this thing, and Finley's trying to tell her, and, and, uh, and, one of the, and you know, with Finley, one of the things we teach her is that people are more important than things, so like if things break, if things spill, like it's going to be okay, and so they were going back and forth about whether or not they need to tell, Chris, Finley needs to tell mom or not because Finley's saying it's going to be okay. Her friend was saying, well, no, I don't want to get in trouble. Uh, eventually, they come downstairs and they tell her. But w- what's interesting about that story is they responded differently based on their relationship. So Finley knows Christina, obviously, knows her mom, and knows that her mom would be okay and we would fix it and would move on. It would be fine. Her friend uh, doesn't know Christina that well. And understandably, if broke something even by accident, it's natural to feel like, well, don't tell anybody. We don't want to get in trouble. And, and I share that story because today we're continuing our series in the book of Jonah. And we're looking at this question. How should we respond when God asks us to do hard things? And as a bonus, two for one here, why should we respond that way? How should we respond when something happens and maybe we don't want to talk to God or we don't want to pursue God or we don't want to obey God? How should we respond? And you might say, well, that answer is maybe easy. You're supposed to do what he tells you. But maybe the bigger question is why? How should we respond when we face difficult things in our life? And why should we respond that way? That's what we're looking at this morning. And so if you have a Bible, we'll be in Jonah chapter 2, or if you have a smartphone, or if you want to read along, the Bible under your chairs is page 821. Uh, To give you some background really quick, if you're joining us for the first time, if you're not familiar with the book of Jonah, uh, it takes place in the 8th century BC, so a long time ago. Uh, You have the prophet Jonah, who God tells to go to Nineveh to preach preach repentance to them, that they need to repent before God. Uh, Jonah doesn't want to do that. We'll find out at Jonah chapter 4 exactly why. But for whatever reason, at this point in the story, he doesn't want to do it. And so he tries to go to Tarshish. He tries to get in a boat and go to the westernmost part of the known world at the time. A storm overcomes the boat. The sailors are trying to figure out why there's a storm here. They find out Jonah's the reason. Eventually, they throw him overboard after Jonah said, it's me. You've got to, like, sacrifice me to fix the situation. So they eventually throw Jonah overboard. A fish swallows him, and the sea immediately dies down. These pagan sailors worship the Lord because they saw his power and his might. And Jonah is now in the water trying to survive as he's continuing to run from God. And so again, uh, chapter 1 ends with him being thrown over and being swallowed by a great fish. And then in chapter 2, Jonah is going to uh, write this poem for us or, or uh, reflect on what it was like in, in the sea, in the fish's mouth, and what his experience was and how he encountered God in that. And so here's what he says, Jonah chapter 2. Again, why, well, how should we respond When God asks us to do hard things, and why should we respond that way? Here's what he says, Jonah chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says this, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, and here's what he prayed. He says, I called out to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. I cried out for, for help from deep inside Sheol, and you heard my Voice Again, what we're going to see here is Jonah revealing, uh, or retelling rather, how the Lord answered him. Now, when he says cried out from Sheol, there's kind of lots of debates about what he means by that. But basically, what we do know is that Sheol, most often in the Old Testament, refers to the place where the wicked go after they die to await God's judgment. Uh, and so Jonah, as we're finding out, he's on the verge of death. And so he's crying out to God to rescue him. And here's what happens next. Verse 3, it says, When you threw me into the depths... 
Into the heart of the seas, the current overcame me. All your breakers and your billows swept over me, and I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look once more toward your holy temple. Now we know, he says, you know, what does he say in verse 3? When you threw me into the depths, we know it was the sailors, right? It was the sailors, not actually God himself who threw him into uh, the sea, but we're supposed to be, what we see here emphasized throughout Jonah is God's sovereignty, that God is in control and that God is over all of these events. And so Jonah recognizes his complete lack of control, and yet he says, he will look once more toward your, uh, your, your temple, which in ancient times, Jewish practice, was when you pray, you would pray face towards Jerusalem. So what he's saying here is that in the midst of my despair, in the midst of my running, in the midst of my disobeying you, I'm going to cry out and seek you because I clearly need help, right? He's in a hopeless situation, but what happens in his hopeless situation is he actually sees his true condition. And one of the things that we see when we read the book of Jonah, one of the truths that come out uh, as we read this story is this, that darkness gives us clear sight, right? The irony of dark and difficult times, times that are full of suffering, uh, times that are full of hardship, when we can't really see, right? Jonah's like in the belly of a fish, he's in the water, it's like pitch black, right? He actually has clear sight. He actually gets to see his condition for what it is. He actually gets to see uh, his reliance on the Lord for what it is. Darkness, when it's hard and difficult, and we would never ask, uh, we would never want to be in a, put in a situation like that. And yet, when life is hardest, we actually get to see our need for God, our, our, uh, our standing before God, how we are not in control of our lives. It actually gives us clear sight. It gives us true sight. And it's interesting, if we reflect on 2020 and COVID-19 and how it's impacting all of us in various different ways, uh, it's, it's hard, right? It's hard because it's unknown. It's hard because we lack control. Uh, it's hard because we're not sure how things are going to play out a week, now, a week from now, a month from now, a year from now. Like, where, where's the country going to be? Where are we going to be? Where's our family going to be? Right? We have all these things that make it hard. And in my opinion, and I could be wrong on this, I think part of what makes this year so difficult and COVID-19 so difficult is not simply uh, that it's, we're in this unknown time and it's difficult and we're suffering. I think it's also hard because in an American context, in our culture, we're, we're not used to not being able to plan our lives. Like, we're not used to not being able to plan what we're going to do a week from now or a month from now or even a year from now, right? I think part of what makes this time even more difficult for us in our culture is that it is showing us what is, again, always true, that we have no control over anything. And again, it's easy for us in our context to think that we have some control, and what we're seeing is that we actually don't have any Right? It's revealing to us in the darkness what is actually true, that we need God's grace and his mercy and his, and his forgiveness and his power in our life to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And maybe you've experienced this in your own life, maybe this year or in years past. Oftentimes, when life is hard, uh, when you're at rock bottom, I guess you could say, it's oftentimes the most freeing. Why? Because you can be honest about your condition. Whether you're in a difficult time in your life or maybe uh, there's been a sin struggle that has overtaken you or maybe a time in the past and you maybe you were somewhat honest with it with, with a few trusted friends, but people didn't really know the condition that you were in until things came to a head. Sometimes when things are difficult, when we actually can cry out to God and for others for help, it's often freeing because we don't have to be fake it anymore. We don't have to pretend that we have control over something when we don't. When life is hard, when life is difficult, what we see happening here is that darkness gives us clear sight. It shows us who we are and our need for God and our need for other people. And this is where Jonah finds himself. He's been running from God. He's 
disobeyed God. He doesn't want to go to Nineveh to preach repentance to them. And now he's saying, well, I actually, no, he needs God to move mightily on his behalf, which has always been true. But darkness shows us this in a truer or in a clearer light than we can sometimes otherwise believe when life is going well. Darkness gives us clear sight. And so here's what he says next in verse 5. It says, the water engulfed me up to the neck. The watery depths overcame me. And seaweed was wrapped around my head. So here's the thing, right? The situation is bad. It's bad because he's completely surrounded, right? The water has engulfed his, uh, completely engulfed him. But you know it's bad when seaweed gets involved. I don't know how many of you have ever been to the beach or to the ocean. And, you know, you're like a piece of seaweed, like touch your foot. That's no joke, right? That's gross. You're like, ooh, what's this thing, right? Can you imagine it being like all over you, right? You know it's over, right? You uh, This is like as bad as it can get. When seaweed gets involved, things are not good. This is gross and this is bad. This is where he finds himself. Verse 6, he then says this, I sank to the foundation of the mountains. The earth's gates shut behind me forever. Now, foundations of the mountain is a symbolic idea of reaching the bottom of the sea, approaching death, uh, approaching Sheol, where he will, will death will, will, will be unescapable, right? He's going down to the depths, he's sinking, and life is about to be over. And this actually concludes what has been happening to Jonah up until this point in the book of Jonah, that he has continually descended downward away from God. What we see through Jonah chapter 1 and up to this point is Jonah is described, about, is described again and again as going down away from God. Let me just briefly share this or explain this to you. In Jonah chapter 1 verse 3, when he initially runs away from God, it says that he goes down to Joppa to get on a boat to flee. In verse 5, when he gets onto the ship, it says he goes down into the bottom of the ship. Uh, in verse 15, when the storm is raging and the sailors eventually agree with Jonah to throw him overboard, uh, he's thrown down into the sea. In verse 2 that we read this morning in chapter 2, it says that he was deep uh, inside Sheol, or another translation, you could say he was down inside Sheol. And now he's at the foundation of the mountains. He's at the bottom of the sea, so, so to speak. Right? Things could not get any worse. He cannot, he, this essentially completes his downward trajectory trajectory away from God. And so when Jonah can sink no further, when life can get no worse, when he's literally about to die, he cries out to God. And then it says this, the second part of verse 6. It says, then you raised me from the, from my, raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. What happens here is that God intervenes right? And he raises him back up. This isn't Jonah, like, saying, I'm going to do all these good things and trying really hard. He can't do anything, right? Jonah doesn't do anything. What happens? God moves on his behalf. God's sovereignty and his control and his grace is displayed. What we see happening here, what, what the truth that is always true, and that is that God rescues us. It is not our trying really hard. It's not our promising to do good things. It's not our giving money to the poor. Uh, it's not our, you know, not sinning and, you know, and, you know doing all, and praying a lot and reading our Bible. It is God that rescues Jonah, and it is God who rescues us. Jonah, in this situation, has done nothing but repent. And this is what we see all throughout Scripture, that God is always a God who moves and gives us grace and forgiveness, not when we do all these good things, but when we simply recognize our need for God, God and His love and His grace towards us. 
He rescues us. And in fact, in Romans chapter 3, it will be on the screens. The Apostle Paul is, is at this point of his letter to the, in, to the Romans, uh, in Romans, he's, he's talking to Jewish believers, uh, and Paul himself is a Jew, and he's basically saying, even though you're, if you're from Israel, the Messiah came from you, and you have circumcision, and you have the law, and you have all these things, you still need the Messiah. Right? You still need Jesus because salvation is not about a cer- certain socioeconomic class. It's not about a certain ethnicity. Uh, it's not about what you do. All of us need Jesus. And he says this in verse 9 of chapter 3. He says, what then? Are we any better off? He's talking about the Jews here. Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Gentiles, so those that are non-Jews, are all under sin. As it is written, and he's going to quote from various passages in the Old Testament, he says this. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. He's talking about our condition, our need for God, that God has to rescue us, that we on our own uh, volition and our own effort cannot erase the sins and the dishonor to God and to others that we have created, that God through his spirit must move in our life. What we see here, what we see in Jonah is that we run, is that we fail, is that we blow it, but God, right, out of love does for you and for me what we could never do for ourselves. Right? God, in His grace and His mercy, does for us what we could never do for ourselves. God, through Jesus' perfect death, burial, and perfect life, death, burial, and resurrection, gives us the opportunity to be rescued. Now, to be clear, this does not mean, like Jonah is going to find out here, that when we trust and repent and believe in Jesus, that everything is going to work out for us the way that we want, right? Sometimes in life, uh, life will still be hard. In fact, sometimes following Jesus <clears throat> makes your life worse, Right? It makes it actually more difficult, but it gives us the grace and forgiveness because one day we will be in his kingdom where none of these things will continue, that our pain, our suffering, our lying, our cheating, our death will completely cease, and it's not because we deserved it, but because God graciously gave it to us. Let me give you an analogy. Uh, it's not a perfect analogy, but it shows how God in his grace does for us that he rescues us. If you're familiar uh, with my story, you know when I was 19 years old, uh, my dad died, and when he died, uh, I have an older brother who was in college. I was in college at the time, and then my younger brother is a few years younger. He was going to be in college at, at one point. Now, our parents are helping us pay for college, and so when you lose, you know, your dad, that makes it difficult. And what makes it even more difficult is that applying for loans, uh, you, they, and maybe it's changed since then, I don't know, but when we were trying to apply because we could no longer afford school, they based it off of your family's previous year's income. Well, that wasn't going to help us because our income was nowhere near what it used to be. And so the only loans that we could get were the ones that had high interest and that the interest started you had to, the interest started right away, like not even when you graduated, it started right away. So we're like, we, we don't know what to do here. And now our church was awesome and they were gracious to us. And so they set up a college fund uh, in, in memory of my dad. And so people gave generously. 
generously. They loved our family. They made it possible for me and my two brothers to finish our degrees and to do many of the things. I mean, New City exists in part because of those people who made it possible for me to go to college, right? In that situation, I didn't do anything to earn it. Like, I didn't prove anything to anybody. And, and since then, there's nothing I can do to pay all these people back. I mean, there's literally nothing I could do for all the people that surrounded and served and financially gave to our family during that time, right? God, through his people, rescued us. And this is what God does for you and for me. He gives us grace and forgiveness and kindness. Not you trying really hard and making God be in your debt so that he has to. God rescues us. He rescues you. You don't rescue you. And that's actually quite a freeing thing, right? It's quite freeing to be honest, to be able to say, I need God's grace and forgiveness that I do not have it all together, and yet God loves me and gives me grace in spite of it. God rescues us, and he rescues Jonah. And so here's what he says next in verse 7 of chapter 2. He says, As my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, to your holy temple, right? Jonah remembered God as his life was ending and prayed to him, right? He finally sees, again, his desperate desperate need for God, which has always been true. And then as we saw in verse 6, God answered uh, answered him and gave him grace and forgiveness and mercy. Now, what's interesting as you read this story, you're probably like, Jonah, bro, what took you so long, right? God clearly somehow, someway directly told you to go preach to Nineveh, and you ran from him, you're on the boat in the storm, and you tell all the other sailors that your God is the actual God who created uh, the land and the sea and everything in it, and now you're dying, and you're coming to death, and you're finally reaching out to God, right? What took you so long? What were you doing? Now, here's what's interesting. Uh, uh, All throughout history, Jewish history, uh, it's actually a tradition to read yourself as Jonah. As you read the book of Jonah, you're supposed to see yourself in it, that all of us like Jonah can run and can disobey God and can go our own way. And so as we look at this, and we might think, Jonah, what took you so long to do what God has clearly asked you to do? We have to ask ourselves that same question, right? I would say this to you and for me, right? What are you running from today, right? What in your life do you know that God has asked you to do or you felt God leading you to do, but you're not doing it? Right, and he's been clear. Maybe in his word, or maybe uh, through you know other friends talking. Is there a sin issue that you need to confess? Is there a dream you need to pursue? Uh, is there a conversation that you need to have, but you're afraid of having it because you don't want to uh, ruffle any feathers, even though your your attention is good? Like, what is it that you're running from today? What is it that, like Jonah, we can read this book and be like, Jonah, what are you doing? Right, we're supposed to look at ourselves and see where are the areas in our life that we are like Jonah. Where are we? running away from, and that like Jonah, we need to remember God and turn to him and be honest about our condition and ask him to move. What are you running from today just like Jonah? And then he says this in verse 8. It's my favorite verse of this chapter. He says this. He says, those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. Here's what he's saying. He's saying those who worship false gods and idols and, you know, God's things that cannot do for them what God can do will eventually abandon them in difficult times. Those who chase worthless idols and things that can't do for you and for I what we want them to do, when life gets hard, we will abandon them, right? We'll see their worthlessness. We'll see that they can't do for us what we wanted them to do, and then we will leave them. 
right? This is supposed to be in contrast to the God who is actually trustworthy and reliable. Again, those who cherish worthless idols will abandon their faithful love. Let me give you an example of this in my life. Um, when I was in middle school, <clears throat> the original Xbox came out. I don't know. Anybody remember this? Anybody remember this? Okay, thank you. <laughs> it was awesome. And with it came this game called Halo. Anybody? Okay, that, that's right. Some of you are like, Pfft. it was awesome, right? And in fact, it was like it won all these awards. It was pretty much the most incredible game, video game, that had come out at that time. The graphics were cool. You were killing aliens. My parents wouldn't let, let us buy the game at first, but eventually they caved in because all my other friends had it. And so it was awesome. And one of the things that made Halo awesome is that you had this thing called System Link. So this is basically you would bring your Xbox to your friend's house, and you could do like four on four or eight on eight, and you'd put the Xboxes in different rooms, and you'd connect them, and you could play against your friends. And it was the most incredible thing ever. Like it was long nights were spent playing and yelling at this game. Now, what made this even more better was a few years later, about three years later, this Halo 2 came out. And so because Halo was such a big success, Halo 2 was very critically acclaimed. People were looking forward to it. I looked it up this week. I think about something like 1.5 million copies were pre-ordered, which was the largest at that time. Um, And people were excited because Halo was awesome, so we were excited about Halo 2. And not only that, Xbox Live was now on the scene, where instead of having to plug your Xbox into your friend's Xbox, you could play at home with your friends online. And Halo 2 was Xbox Live compatible. This is awesome, okay? Yes, this is awesome. Trust me. And so, you know, I I still remember it to this day. Halo 2 came out. The day it came out, I went to the mall with my friend that night, and we bought it, and it was awesome. Now, here's the thing. Do you want to know what I thought about Halo 2 a month after it came out? It was awesome. Do you want to know what I thought about Halo 2 three months after it came out? It was awesome. Do you want to know what I thought about Halo 2 six months after it came out? It was awesome. But here's the thing. When my dad died, Halo 2 didn't help me. When Christine and I were married the first few years, we'd have these big blowout fights trying to figure out how to, get, how to be married. Halo 2 wasn't there. A couple years ago when we started planning and dreaming a new city church and wasn't sure if it was going to work out, where was Halo 2? It wasn't there. Now, here's the thing. This isn't to say that we can't have hobbies and we can't have passions and we can't enjoy things. Like it's God's grace to us that he gives us things that we uh, take pleasure in and are good. And I think he delights when his children are experiencing joy from his creation, right? It's not to say like we can't, but here's the thing. A lot of the things that we love and we care about, and it's fine to have these passions, but if we don't see them correctly, when life is difficult, they'll be nowhere to be found. Like I enjoyed Halo 2 for, I don't know, a couple of years, I guess, but it couldn't do for me what God could do for me. This is what he says when those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. We can't derive meaning from these things. Maybe to put another way, you can think of it like this, that helpless times reveal hopeless pursuits. Helpless times reveal in our life hopeless pursuits, reveal to things uh, that cannot do for us what we want them to do. Or maybe you enjoy something and you have a hobby and you have a passion and that is good. You shouldn't like stop having that. But when life is difficult, when life is hard, it actually reveals where our trust is and what we're pursuing and whether or not it's worth it of putting our ultimate meaning and desire in things that can't do for us what God can do for us. Hopeless times reveal these pursuits that can be great, but we can elevate them maybe higher than they should because they are nowhere to be found when life is hard. 
They are nowhere to be found when depression has set in. There is nowhere to be found when our, when our world has been completely shaken because of the sin of someone that someone has committed against us or when a child runs, goes astray or when a family member dies. Hopeless times reveal helpless pursuits, and that is what Jonah is saying here. You can have passions. You can have desires. But if God is out of the picture, you will find out when your life is hard just how little these things will help you. And again, we've all seen that in 2020. A lot of the things that we might have liked and enjoyed are nowhere to be found in our darkest moments. Hopeless times reveal helpless pursuits. And that is what Jonah is experiencing here. And so Jonah chapter 2 concludes by him saying this. He says, but as for me, I will sacrifice to you, to the Lord, with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Right? Having been rescued by God, what he's saying here is that Jonah is thankful, and he promises to offer sacrifices to God, which, by the way, is the same response as the sailors in Jonah chapter 1, after God uh, miraculously calms the wave and the seas. After, God, after seeing God move in his faithfulness and trusting in him, uh, then the Jonah is vomited out of the fish, and he is going to survive. And by the way, this is how the gospel impacts us. When we look at this idea of how should we respond when God asks us to do hard things, and more so, why should we respond that way? So how we would say, well, you should do what God says. You should be faithful to him, right? That's what we're supposed to do. The question is why. <clears throat> and what we see in the gospel, <clears throat> or in what Jesus has done for us, is that we honor God and we pursue God and we honor him, we follow him out of a response, not out of, out of an obligation, right? Jo Jonah here is promising sacrifices and prayers and to be faithful again to God, not out of obligation, but out of response of him being rescued and experiencing the grace and the mercy of God. What we see happening here is that, is that J Jesus is the hero of the story, not Jonah, right? Jesus is the hero of the story, not Jonah. And Jonah is seeing the experience of God. And the gospel is that in Christ, you and I don't follow God because we're told to. We don't follow God because it's the right thing to do. We don't follow God because he's going to be angry with us. We follow God because he loves us and he cares for us and he does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And so because of that, we also want to love God and love other people so that other people can experience the grace and the mercy of God. What we're meant to see here is that Jonah is pointing as is all of Scripture, to Jesus. And in fact, Jesus himself says as much. In Matthew chapter 12, it'll be on the screen, it's just a few verses, Jesus is talking uh, to a bunch of religious leaders, and they're asking him, and he's talking about how a house can't be divided, and so they, they're kind of claiming that Jesus is being demonic, and he's saying, well, that's not true. And then he talks about a tree and its fruit, that if you actually love God, uh, your life should reflect that in some way. And then, they, then it says this in verse 38 of chapter 12 in Matthew. It says, then... Some of the scribes and the Pharisees said to him, so said to Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And he answered them, And indeed, an evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights." The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's preaching. And look, something greater than Jonah is here. 
He's saying, you're rejecting what God has given you, grace. And these wicked people of Nineveh will actually stand up in judgment against you because they believed in the Lord of the heavens and the earth. What we're supposed to see here is that the Savior of Jonah was not the fish. It was not the sailors. It was not the ocean. It was not the storm. The Savior of Jonah is the same Savior for you and for me. And that's Jesus. That Jonah is pointing to our need for a perfect Messiah who can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And so what we see happening, particularly in Jonah chapter 2, is that God doesn't give up on Jonah and he doesn't give up on us. Or maybe to put it another way, you could think of it like this. That God doesn't despise the runaways, he rescues them. God doesn't despise the runaways, he rescued him. Last week, we mentioned how surrender, surrender to God, is an invitation to stop running. And what we also see here is that God does not despise us for doing that. God does not say, what took you so long, or how about time, or you know what, if you had repented a year ago, you would have been good, but, but there's no more grace for you. What we see instead happening is God doesn't despise the runaways. He gives us grace and forgiveness. If you do not know Jesus today and you've been running for a long time or maybe this year has revealed darkness in your life that you want to see God bring hope and healing to, you need to know that you're not here by accident and God's not going to be like, what took you so long? He cares for you and he gives you grace. If you're a follower of Jesus and maybe this year has been difficult or maybe it's caused maybe apathy in your faith because a lot of our rhythms have been uh, disrupted to a large degree, God is not upset with you. He's not angry with you. He's simply inviting you back into a relationship with him. And I think one of the maybe the best examples of the last few hundred years that shows this truth that God doesn't despise us when we run from him but that he rescues us is the story of John Newton. I don't know if you're familiar with John Newton or not, but he lived in the 1700s uh, through a series of events in his life. He became a sailor on, um, uh, on a slave, tri- uh, slave uh, ship, so he was a part of the uh, cross-Atlantic slave trade. He was eventually promoted to a captain and ca- actually captained a few tr- uh, slave ships. At some point during all of this, he hears the gospel, becomes a follower of Jesus, and it doesn't leave the slave trade. Eventually, he has a stroke, and so he has to step back, and he goes back to live in London, England, where he grew up. And it took him, he says, about 12 years from the time he first gave his life to Jesus for him to actually go back and look back at his time as a slave trader and condemn it and look at it with disgust and shame. He actually said, as a follower of Christ, it took me a long time for God to reveal to me the evils and the atrocities that I was a part of. In fact, later on in his life, he wrote a book called Thoughts Upon the Slave Trade about his involvement and what it was like. And and part of this book was a confession. It was a confession of what he had taken part of, and he eventually says this in his book. He says, it's a confession which comes too late. It will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. Now, why do we share John Newton, and what does he have to do with this idea that God doesn't despise the runaways, he rescues them? Uh, John Newton went on to write maybe the most well-known hymn in our day that's around today, and that's Amazing Grace. And if you're familiar, at least with the first line of Amazing Grace, what does he say? Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Now, when you sing this song, you have to understand, this is not false humility. He's saying, I beat I killed, I was a part of the, one of the most massive atrocities, at least happening in the world at that time, uh, making human beings uh, into, not even animals, into objects to be, to be commanded, to be owned, property, to do whatever you want with. I was a part of that. 
And so what I see happening here is that this, this idea of amazing grace is not just cheap to me. It's not just like feels good to me. It's reality of my life that God gave me what I didn't deserve. Right, it reminds us what Paul writes uh, in the New Testament when he says that he was the chief of sinners. Paul was uh, actively part of uh, persecuting and killing Christians before he came run. And so when John says, amazing grace, how sweet this sound that saved a wretch like me, he's talking about someone who, from experience, understands that God doesn't despise the runaways. He rescues them. Then what does he say? I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I'm see. What does he say? That in darkness... He experienced true light. When life was hard, when he did what was unthinkable, right, especially as we look at it now, like how could you do that? He says, I experienced the grace and mercy of God to do for me what I could never have done for myself. And so I don't know where you are today. I don't know what you've done. I don't know what this year, the past couple of years, maybe even this week, maybe even yesterday looks like for you. But you and I need to understand that he doesn't despise us for these things, that he rescues us and he gives us grace and mercy. And so today's the day that we need to recommit. We need to trust. We need to follow him, even in the midst of difficulties of life, because there's grace for us, and he loves us. He can take our doubts. He can take our anger. He can take our frustrations. He can take our questions. He's not afraid of any of these things, right? He's not afraid of any of these things, because he loves us. And so I'm going to pray, and then the band's going to come up, and we're going to sing about the grace and goodness of our, of our God, the fact that God doesn't despise the runaways. He rescues us.